0: You're listening to the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute's Natural Podcast, a podcast about natural products and the science and scientists of secondary metabolism. Hey, everybody, welcome back for Natural Podcast, episode 17. The guest we have this week is Professor Cassandra Quave from Emory University, with joint appointments in the School of Medicine and College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, She's an ethnobotanist and the herbarium curator there with a broad range of experimental work on plants for drug discovery in antibiotics, anti-cancer, and now COVID. Uh, We also wanted to talk to her because she's written a book about her life and her science called The Plant Hunter, and I have to say it's so awesome. For those of you who want to understand more about natural products and drug discovery or the challenges of academia or if you want to understand what it's like to do field science as a woman with a physical disability, you're going to love it and enjoy it and learn a ton. Uh, And for those of us who already work in natural products, you're going to get a great look at the intersection of traditional medicines and medicinal plants with the pursuit of modern drug discovery. Um, It's also the kind of book we can hand off to family members and friends as a way to introduce them to the field. I really can't recommend it enough to this audience. Uh, The hardcover version is out now in stores and online, um, and there's an audio version read by Cassandra, and the paperback version will be available in June. Uh, You can get more info on all this at Cassandraquave.com. And I'll link out to everything in the show notes, as always, at naturopodcast.com. And if you can't get enough Cassandra, you'll also want to check out her podcast, Foodie Pharmacology, where she talks about history, medicine, cuisine, and chemicals. Uh, The conversation today covers a lot of ground, her book, um, Bioprospecting versus Biopiracy, Early Stage Drug Discovery in General, and a Possible Data-Driven Future for Plant Natural Products. Uh, It's a good one. Happy listening. Hey, Allison. Hey, Dan. So, Allison, I'm very excited today. Um... Usually, when we do these interviews, uh most of the people that I think we've talked to so far, I either know personally or have worked with directly or have met at conferences or 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 just you know know through professional circles in some way or another. Um, but uh today, uh we have someone who weirdly I haven't i think ever been in a room with or or <laughs> spoken directly to but I feel like I really know her and that's because (laughs) uh, she has a book called The Plant Hunter uh, and I've read all 400 pages of her life and I feel like I have a new friend that I'm really eager to talk to. So our our guest today is uh, Cassandra Quave.
1: I do just want to say that I also feel like Cassandra Quave has put herself on the page and and made herself really knowable through her book. and, and I it was such a, a great book, The Plant Hunter. And so I'm sure we'll hear more about that today. Uh, but it's it's kind of amazing just all the things that Cassandra has done. And so hi, Cassandra, welcome. <laughs> and I just want to start out with you you have done so much and you wear so many hats. So I just want to give you a chance to introduce yourself.
2: Okay, great. Well, hey, it was, it's so great to see both of you, Dan and Allison. And I strangely feel like I know you as well, just from, you know, <laughs> being on Twitter. It's this weird, like, virtual world where I'm like, oh, you know,
0: I told Allison that, uh, oh, Cassandra's kind of one of my Twitter friends.
2: So Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Twitter friends are the best. <laughs> yeah, great. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny. It's, it's kind of weird to me that like people are actually reading the book, you know, cause it was this like, you know, labor of love for so long. And I'm like, oh, no right. one's going to read this. And then people will have, <laughs> and, then, and it's just, yeah, it's a weird feeling. It's an exciting feeling, but I'm really happy to be here today. Um, so Alison, you asked about my mini hats, um, so let's see, from a professional stance, I'm an associate professor of dermatology and human health at Emory University based in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm also the herbarium curator. So I take care of a museum of dead plants. I'm really good at finding and killing plants. So if you haven't figured that out already from the book, mm-hmm. um, not so
1: great at growing them,
2: unfortunately.
1: I, oh, also- I don't think that's true. Based <laughs> on, your, on, on, on the recounting of your garden, it- I think. Yeah, my it. garden benefits greatly from my husband's love and care. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, and let's see, I lead a research group at Emory. Um, I teach classes here on food and health and botanical medicine. Um, I'm also a mom of uh, four kids now, so ranging from eight to 17. Um, in age, so my home life is very busy and uh, i'm also a pet mom of a mini pig and a dog so we have we have a lot of a lot of action happening out
1: at home how amazing i i don't know how you found the time to write a book, but based on your productivity and and kind of what was shared in the book it it seems like it 's par for the course <laughs> yeah it was i mean
2: it was such an opportunity i I feel incredibly thankful and really, really blessed to have had the opportunity to tell this story. I know like just, you know, since I was little, I'd always wanted to write a book, um, but it's really hard to break into, into that area. I mean, you have to secure an agent and, and there's all these steps and it's kind of a mystery of how you get there. And I just feel like, you know, I, I got super lucky and and found an agent that was really a great fit for me and really supportive and, you know, found an amazing editor. Um, and yeah, it just kind of came together um, in the most delightful and unexpected way. Um, so I had to leave it that chance when it when it presented itself.
1: So I have an idea of where we could start, but Cassandra, mm-hmm. please let us know if you want to start somewhere else. Um, so you go into this in the book, but can you share with listeners what made you interested in plants and the natural compounds that they make? Yeah. So
2: I mean, my path towards natural products and and medical ethnobotany really began with early childhood experiences in science, right? So I was an always an outdoorsy kid. I was, you know, um often found in a tree or covered in dirt playing with my dog in the yard. Um, but I was also a bit of an unusual kid too, because I was born with a lot of different um birth effects of my skeletal system. So I was missing bones and I had to have a lot of corrective surgeries as a, as a young child. And so Many of those times when I was out and about, I was on crutches. Um, and um, because I couldn't always wear my prosthetic leg, I had my leg amputated when I was three and almost died of an infection following um, the amputation. So I had this kind of oddball childhood where I was in and out of the hospital all the time. But I was, all, you know, when I was, you know, well enough to be outdoors, that's where you could find me. And, um, you know really, it was my third grade science fair project where I first looked into a microscope and just fell in love with this invisible world that was all around me because i was all, I was always an observant child like i I just like to sit and look at things and observe insects and and when I saw you know what was going on under the microscope, that really got me excited and so Flash forward to college, and I'm on a pre-medical track, um, actually at Emory is where I where I did my undergraduate, mm-hmm. and I was a double major in biology, and I kind of got introduced to this field of anthropology at the time, too. I'd never even heard of anthropology. This is, you know, I grew up in a very rural small town. We didn't have AP or IB courses or any of <laughs> these kind of advanced things that, that my kids have opportunities to, to partake in today. Um So there were all these new concepts that I was being introduced to. And um, in one of my courses, I had the opportunity to learn more about traditional ways of healing in the world. Um, And that really caught my interest And it was in another course in a tropical ecology course that I first encountered the term ethnobotany. And for the audience, ethnobotany is the scientific study of the ways that people interact with plants, whether it's for plants to make clothing or musical instruments or food or medicine, which was really where my my passion was. And so, you know, a path opened its itself to me um, in just before my senior year of college, a chance to go to the Amazon and work with a with a traditional healer as kind of a volunteer intern in his garden, and again, it's one of those things where you have these paths available, and you have to either leap at it and go, or not. And for me, I just there was just no way I wasn't going. I had to do this. I, I just really felt such a compulsion to go, and it was really a life changing um, experience for me. I was very much a skeptic at the time. How can these plant based medicines actually work? Because again, I was getting training, you know, biochemistry and organic chemistry, and all of these, you know, kind of hardcore principles of Western medicine. Um, But in the Amazon, I really started to understand how healers are able to interpret the language of ecology and interpret the language of plants and use that as a way of treating their patients. And um, as I read more and experienced more, I, I came to really appreciate the fact that many of our modern medicines are derived from nature and in many cases from plants And so, you know, I think of nature, you know, as, as giving us the gift of blueprints to interesting natural products that, that we can, you know, use successfully, hopefully in the future, even more so um, as novel therapies. And that's kind of how I got on that path of instead of wanting to practice medicine, I decided I want to discover and make medicine.
0: So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good definition of ethnobotany, which was sort of one of the questions I wanted to, to, to probe you on. Um, and uh, you know that's I, I, a it's a really interesting field that I guess um, so so I'm more of a microbe guy and uh, as is, as is allison or not not a guy but <laughs> microbe lady and um you know i th- I think I'm always intrigued by the the people aspects of things because a lot of I think what we do at JGI in terms of like the sequencing that we do is you know very people disconnected and 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 culture disconnected like you know we'll we'll take some soil samples and sequence all the bugs out of that or or whatever and so um uh, I was I was intrigued by the the small section in the book about you know the the conflicts between ideas of biopiracy <laughs> versus bioprospecting and and where that lies. Um, and uh, I don't know. Do you, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that in terms of um, ethnobotany's views? Because I think I'm asking because um, partially it's a it's a checkup on me, and I I wonder how you know how that intersects with with bacterial bioprospecting that that is often done we're really just looking at dna sequences and we don't always know necessarily or pay attention to where bacteria come from and do people even know that the bacteria are there they haven't been used as medicines but but with with botany it's very very different so um I guess I don't have a question. I'm I'm just sort of yeah. wanting to probe that topic a little bit.
2: Oh, absolutely. This is a, this is a really pertinent question. So let's 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 explain first what is the difference between bioprospecting versus biopiracy. Um, at its most fundamental level, the difference is really in whether or not the research materials that you're working on or the products that you're developing are being worked on or accessed. Under the principles of access and benefit sharing. So, are you taking something without giving any benefit back to the owners of that genetic material? So, this is also relevant to bacteria. I mean, if you go into another country and take soil and discover a new important drug from the microbes in that soil, you know, there are now international regulations that um, provide a structure for ensuring that. The countries that are the source of that soil can receive some recompense. So, there, the this this um, convention I'm talking about is called the Convention on Biological Diversity, and there's something called the Nagoya Protocol on Access and Benefit Sharing. And for a very long time, you know, there were. It kind of served as a as a guidepost, but there weren't many examples, and there wasn't much infrastructure available to, especially to researchers just starting out as they're trying to form collaborations in different countries. I think that's changed a lot since the convention went into the protocol went into force in 2014. Um, there's now a website that has a lot of resources that you can access. As an ethnobotanist, you know a lot of our work obviously is is spent on plants. Um, and, and in my area of applied ethnobotany, which is really focused on on medicine, you know there's clear there's a clear history of colonial exploitation of both plants and the peoples that have you know either cultivated or selected for certain varieties of those plants or who have informed others as to how to use them medicinally. Um, and we all benefit from that in a weird way today. I mean, if you think about how much you yeah. enjoy that morning cup of coffee, I mean, mm-hmm. that is a plant that has a, a functional activity. It's a pharmacological agent that acts as a stimulant on your central nervous system that in some ways could be considered a medicinal plant, right? Because it has sure. something other than just, you know, um, dietary implications, Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, one that's taken a journey around the world, starting in Ethiopia and over into the Arabian Peninsula and then into Europe and everywhere now. Um, But, you know, was there any reward to the people that originally discovered how coffee could be used? Um, The same can be said for many of our spices. And, you know, you can look at the colonial history of what happened in Indonesia and the Banda Islands with, you know, everyone that's enjoying their pumpkin spice lattes of the season. You know, they may be shocked to know that some of those key ingredients, things like nutmeg and mace or cloves, you know, actually led to the annihilation of an entire people, their enslavement and murder um, in the search for a monopoly on the trade of those plants. So there's a lot of bloody, dirty history behind plants. And certainly ethnobotanists today don't want to follow in those footsteps, (laughs) right? So Um, There's a lot of work that goes into establishing new field sites. Um, And it's also important to set expectations because, you know, I've worked on hundreds of plants in many different cultures. And just because you do a field study in a location doesn't mean that you're going to have this massive economic gain or some benefit come out of that necessarily. Um, And so I think, The way I like to approach it is, number one, is I put a lot of emphasis in my program on research capacity building. And I think this is something I love more natural products um, scientists to think about. Because if you look at the 36 hotspots or terrestrial biodiversity hotspots that we have on Earth, most of those occur in nations that have very poor research infrastructures. That hurts us um, across the field of science because they're the ones that have access to these um, natural resources, but they don't necessarily have the support network, the equipment, the facilities to really apply um, the cutting-edge science, you know, to these in, in investigations. So um, some of the things that we do is really look for opportunities through grant funding programs to build up research capacity with our global partners. And I can just give one example of our work um, that's been ongoing now in, in the Balkans and in, in Kosovo. Um, where we've been able to work with um, the State Department to get funds to help um, encourage and and support training, where we've done laboratory exchanges. We also recently um, were fortunate to get awarded one of the peer um, uh, grants. And the peer mechanism is something that's offered through the National Academies of Sciences. It's supported also by... um, USAID. And it's basically a mechanism where you can piggyback onto one of your existing NSF or NIH grants and get funds that would go not really to you, but they go to your partners in your other countries that are supported through these programs. And so we've done this in Kosovo. They've been able to um, not only purchase their own HPLC to enable faster analysis of their plant extracts, but also establish their own microbiology lab, so that they on site can really do more to assess the amazing biodiversity of of that mountain region, um, rather than just having it be the Western person comes in and and takes the plants yeah. and then brings them back to their lab. I think that's my overall goal, and you know, if I were to have a dream, that would be what it would be: is to really help build a larger network of scientists across across these countries so that's that's one way to support you know access and benefit sharing
0: that's a that's a very cool resource that i'm not terribly familiar with uh, though i've been out of the grant writing game for a while so um yeah (laughs) uh, but yeah no that's that's a that's a great idea and and uh hopefully other people will take some inspiration from that that's awesome
2: yeah, and I, I'm sorry if I'm using like acronyms too. NSF's National Science Foundation, NIH National Institutes of Health, for those of that. I mean, I, I figure I most of the listeners are most of are our are listeners are, are probably
0: <laughs> intimately familiar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would expect, but sure.
2: Yeah. So um, the other the other thing that we do on the ground with the communities themselves is really think about, you know, what are their needs? What are their desires? In many cases, in discussions with elders and communities, and especially with healers, is they want to have the knowledge returned to them in some format. So for example, um, when I was doing right. my, my dissertation research, I gathered data from all over this uh, area of Southern Italy. And um, in addition to, you know, the papers and things I published for my dissertation. I also wrote a book that was um, it was actually trilingual, so English, Italian, and had some of the plant terms in Arboresh, which is a, a kind of an endangered version of modern day Albanian that comes from five centuries ago. That's a long story, but it had <laughs> those had those right. words in there as well. And it was prepared almost like a like a coffee table book so that you know it was very very visual. Lots of kind of information on how the grandmothers and the healers explained how they prepared these medicines. And we were able to, um, our partners were able to get money from the European Union to pe- print a thousand copies of this. And we were able to distribute it across the community. So that's been used in supporting educational initiatives and work with school children and understanding the plants in their environment. Um, we also um, were able to build a botanical garden, like a small teaching ethnobotanical garden. So these are some things that even, even if you're not like a big pharma company and you're just like an assistant mm-hmm. professor, or at the time I was just an, you know, a grad student, there are yeah. definitely ways that you can support you know, benefit sharing and bringing value back to these communities so that it's not just kind of an extractive process. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah, Cassandra, in your book, you mentioned working on several antibiotic-resistant microbes, including a bacterium called methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Can you share why finding treatments for these microbes is so important? <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's First a great all,
1: question, <laughs> Allison. So, I mean, staff is my old nemesis. It almost killed yeah. me when I
2: was three, right? Um, it wasn't an MRSA strain at the time because that was in the 1980s. I'm showing my age now, right? So, early 1980s, we didn't have. Um, I mean, there were some isolated cases, but it wasn't as widespread as we have today. Um, and, you know, the the sad truth is MRSA and and staff in general kills more people than HIV AIDS does every year in the U S. And it has since 2005. I mean, even though we technically have a number of different antibiotics in our arsenal, um, to treat infections by MRSA. And then there are other infections that we really have almost nothing for. We're also working on organisms, um, pathogenic fungi, like Candida auris in the lab. And we work on carbapenem resistant Acetobacter baumannii. <laughs> so that's a mouthful. Um, yep. And those are really hard to kill. I mean, really, really hard to treat. We've thrown our entire library at at the Abomani and and came up with just a few a few possible, you know, compounds to chase down. But they're, you know, the challenge is as 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 the listeners know, even when you find a highly, you know, potent active compound that has a good cytotoxicity profile, so a nice selectivity index you know, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to make a good systemic drug, right? So there's just, we're pushing closer and closer to the envelope, but you have to go through a lot of different options before you find something that could be a viable, you know, for development as an antibiotic.
1: And so is that the main thrust of your research now, looking through your library, looking for compounds that could be active against these antibiotic-resistant microorganisms?
2: Yeah, that's definitely one of the main thrusts. I mean, I think that... The two thrusts that I see in the research group are number one is I really want to understand how these traditional medicines work. Because, you know, in my mind, when I think about plants that are used for the treatment of infectious or inflammatory disease and these same species are being used not just by one generation, but by many generations, and maybe there are some small alterations in the recipe of how the medicines are prepared. But this knowledge is getting passed down over and over and over again, and in some cases, you know, many centuries. And we can find evidence of that by looking at historic texts, which we have done, looking at old texts in Latin and also in um, in Chinese block text as well. I think so that's one one question is like how do these work, do these work are they safe and how can that inform people that use these as their primary form of medicine the second um kind of driving force is absolutely i'm unabashedly applied In my research, which doesn't strangely doesn't always help me with grant applications, you know, it's 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 a weird, it's a yeah, um, but yes, I would I would love to find more drugs. I like that's the main focus of our work, looking for new therapies that could be used to treat these highly resistant um, bacterial and fungal pathogens. And we've actually um, just wrapped up a year a years long screen. Probably the largest screen ever attempted, I think, on COVID that we're getting ready to submit for publication and have found some interesting hits for that as well. And so I think that there are really interesting small molecules in nature that that are just waiting to be found. They're hard to get at. I mean, you have to really, there are a lot of bottlenecks, as as you all know. When it, when it comes to isolating, you know, compounds from these very complex mixtures. And in some cases, sure. you know, an isolated compound is not the answer. Some cases it's actually multiple compounds acting in synergy, um, which yeah. is scientifically fascinating, but a huge pain <laughs> to deal <laughs> with in the lab.
0: Yeah. Especially for advancing towards the clinic. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, so, so then um, you know, maybe maybe the COVID stuff is a good example. What's your then approach uh, to, or toward your your scientific approach? I guess um, how, where where do you start when you you decide to tackle a new target or or whatever? Yeah. Um, what what's what's your process for discovery?
2: Great. So I think the the process really begins with the construction of our library. So that's something that's ongoing. We have I think we're over seven hundred species in the library now it's unique in that it is highly targeted towards, again, plants that are used in traditional medicine for infectious and inflammatory disease. So we have over 2000 extracts. Um, some, some labs like to pre-fractionate before screening. I do not. Mm-hmm. I would rather mm-hmm. screen all of the crudes I've got and then based on both um, activity and cytotoxicity, then we start the process of kind of go, you know, nailing down on the activity when it came to, you know, when it comes to finding a new target to screen, I think having, um, assays that are amenable to high throughput testing is really important for us. In this particular case, we are using a pseudovirion screen to look at the interaction between SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and the ACE2 receptor. So we're looking at viral entry inhibitors, um, but the other kind of important part of our, of our approach is the ability to go back and forth as we screen and fractionate. So between the two labs, I have labs on different sides of campus. That's why I mean when I say between the two labs, they're all kind of under the same umbrella, but physically apart from each other. So in the phytochemistry lab, we're preparing the drugs, the master plates for testing. In the micro lab, we're screening. Once we have hits, we kind of go back to phytochem and we have folks working on fractionation Um, structure ID, all that jazz. And in the meantime, we're going back and forth. I think that ability to do that in-house is really important because even with the best collaborators, there's always a lag when you're trying to get another lab to test your compounds. It's just Mm -hmm. So I'm able to avoid that by having it all done in-house. And then the other, I think, really important thing that we've done in our approach is I really try to find experts that are able to take it beyond that initial screen. Because I am not an expert in virology. Okay. So, I, but what I can do and what I have done is I've teamed up with people that are, that are experts in virology and immunology. And we're putting together a grant right now to look at some of these in non human primates, should they pass the next steps in terms of live virus testing. Um, so having that ability and willingness, I think, to collaborate across disciplines can't be underestimated as really s- being just so incredibly important um, to advancing these discoveries. The idea that something can go literally from the field to the pharmacy in one lab is just not possible. I mean, you need yeah. to be able to work yeah. with other people.
0: In the natural products field, we we kind of call that find and grind then, it sounds like. Very traditional kinds of, uh, of uh, yeah. That's in, in a bit of contrast to what we usually do with bacteria nowadays, which is we usually just get a, a DNA sequence first, right? And and there are plenty of software tools to find natural product gene clusters and even be able to somewhat predict the, the structures of the compounds that would be produced. But plants it's not that easy, right? Um, you know, there are not still not that many plant genomes. Uh, certainly, no nowhere close to bacterial kinds of numbers. Um, what's your thought on on the future of what you do then, and and uh, are there ways to do data-driven approaches uh, at some point like that in the future?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know how amenable plants were really to a kind of genome-based approach for screening. Mm-hmm. i I think a lot of our work has been focused on exploring the possibilities of kind of bioinformatics and ways to mine you know spectroscopic data. So uh, the listeners are probably quite familiar with GNPS as a tool and kind of using right. molecular network analysis um, to uh, as as kind of a you know an early early step. That's something that we do as an early step when we're looking at more complex mixtures. We'll, we'll kind of see what kind of scaffolds are present in those mixtures. Um, we also you know are trying to move <laughs> have another. Proposal in review right now with a, uh, a fabulous uh, set of collaborators with Josea um, Nelson at, 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 um, at Caltech and Yi uh, Tang at, at UCLA and um, Julia Kubanek at Georgia Tech, where we're proposing to take this kind of newly emerging Cryo M micro ED technology. A massive leap forward into using it as a tool for screening plant natural products and other natural product libraries. So not relying on kind of single crystal x-ray diffraction, but like looking actually at powders. And we've, we've had some promising preliminary data where we've done this. If you think about you know, the classic, okay, find and grind technique where you have your crude extract, you have different layers, maybe your liquid liquid partition layer, your flash chromatography, then you know multiple iterations of preparative LC until you get down to your bio-guided you know targets. Um, we've been able to work our way back up from the bottom of that fractionation tree, moving up closer. So like basically at each level, it becomes more and more chemically complex. And we're we've looked at these compounds through classic spectroscopic technologies, you know, NMR, mass spec, whatnot, um, and then are comparing that to see what we're able to pick out through this cryo-EM cryo- micro ed um, context. And so. For me, I mean, when I first read that paper, um, you know that that where they were starting to show the ability to really identify, get crystal structures out of these mixed powders, my immediate thought was, this is going to revolutionize plant natural products work. And I mean, I'm always thinking about plants, but I'm sure it'd be very useful to other areas of natural products work as yeah, well. And. Yeah. Um, so taking a very different kind of, you know, approach to that. And I think there's more we need to do when it comes to our existing libraries. I mean, some of the limitations of, you know, platforms like GMPS are, it's it's very poor in terms of annotations on, on plant natural products, rich, Mm -hmm. rich in bacterial and marine stuff. So we need more people annotating, (laughs) more people working on these plants. Um, I think if there's anything in my book that hopefully comes across, it's my sirens call. Of people to the field we need more plant <laughs> natural products chemists and more ethnobotanists to, to work on these areas we have over thirty three thousand species of plants used by humans in medicine and we know almost nothing about most of them
0: yeah i mean one of the r- fun things i really enjoyed about the book is just sort of you know there's there's the narrative of what's going on through your life but then there's all these little sidebars of 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 you know plants and what they're doing and what their history is and and it's almost like sort of i can picture like the the movie version of it where <laughs> <laughs> you know the things are happening and then there's all these little labels on the plants that are in the surroundings and, and um i i feel like uh uh having that that perspective on the way a scientist thinks about things and and the way a natural products chemist sort of has a perspective on you know what the heck is going on in the world around us and what we don't know and what we do know is is a a really f- i thought it was a really fun way to show how a scientist thinks i think your book is cool. a really great example of that i really really enjoyed it i'm going to i'm going to buy a copy and give it to my daughter oh <laughs> for thank <sure>. you <laughs> yeah yeah there's
2: a lot of scientific names in there <laughs> and I was, like, I, was like, but I, I was like i have to it's like i have to include these in the book i Absolutely. can't
0: have them. no <laughs> <laughs> no there's no reason to hide who we are
1: <laughs> uh, i had a question about the the Complexity of the problem, so and, mm. and the scale. So, thinking about you know thirty three thousand plants, how many plants would you say we've characterized to a natural product level?
2: Oh, I don't. Oh man, this is a hard question. I mean, it's like yeah. I'll, I'll tell. I can tell you this. Like during the early days of the pandemic, my team took on this crazy idea of asking, "What do we actually know?" About plant-derived antibiotics, and this was for a Chemical Reviews paper, and was a, just a massive amount of work. But we we looked at the literature from like the '40s <laughs> until now, and then you know my lab pleaded mercy, and I said, okay, we'll just do 2011 <laughs> to present day, and it was still like 4,000 articles we had to go through. But you know, oh um, here's here's the problem: the literature when it comes to plant natural products, is rife with really poorly designed studies. We have studies where, you know, people write about work on certain plants, but they have no authenticated voucher specimens. So whereas in your area where you get a genome of an organism, when it comes to the plant sciences, you need to have a physical copy of the plant, like a physical specimen. Pressed yeah. And stored and authenticated by a botanist and surprisingly high number of these studies are lacking that. And so there's no way to be hundred percent sure that the chemistry that they're even reporting on is from the plant they say they're working on. Um, plant nomenclature is also very confusing. There are many synonyms, many, you know, and, and these get mixed up in the literature as well. And then when it comes to the actual methodologies, we just focused on looking at studies that assess the MIC or minimum inhibitory concentration of plant extracts and individual compounds derived from plants. And, you know, that's another area of weakness where a lot of people are using things like diffusion, which is not amenable really, especially to complex extracts because you, you know, the, the way things diffuse across auger, of course, has to do a lot with the different properties of the different molecules in the mixture. Um, And so what we did is we really limited our our review to those um, plant extracts or plant-derived compounds that were assessed through standardized methods through broth microtiter dilution, and they had clear authentication parameters in place. And out of that, we found um, just under a thousand plants that have been tested as crude extracts or slightly refined fractions for antibacterial activity. When it came, and that was published in a Frontiers review paper, we tried to send this whole mega thing to Chemical Reviews, and they're like, "What? No, this is too much." <laughs> so it actually ended up being two papers that were both actually too much. We probably could have divided it into four. It was just so it was so long. There was so much information mm-hmm. we had to distill. Um, but in the in the Chemical Reviews paper, we found four hundred fifty nine. Isolated compounds. Now, the weaknesses in a lot of those papers was that most of those were lacking counter-screening data against mammalian targets. So we don't know what the selectivity indices are. We don't know how cytotoxic they are, because this is something I'm sure many of the listeners in this audience know that, you know, there's a lot of things in nature that will kill bacteria, but they'll also kill you. I mean, I've got a lot of <laughs> a lot of things that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll make a great antibiotic because they're so toxic. So, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting starting points for medicinal chemists to kind of play with. And we tried to organize that data and posted the SMILES data also with the Pew Charitable Trust. So back to your question of like, what do we know? Well, we know that at least 900 have been looked at for infection that had some decent, you know, met some parameters for testing. But in those, you know, they didn't get down to single compounds. There were only a few papers that got into single compounds. Um, and- you know even of the plants that are heavily studied, like if you think about uh, ingredients and dietary supplements, they're still finding novel chemistries in those. I mean, we just they're yeah. they're so incredibly complex. There's so much there to mine and work through. So, you know, when it comes to those that have, you know, some rigorous examination, I would say we're we're still in the low hundreds, it would be would be my best estimate.
0: How much of an issue is strain variance in plants? Do you do you see different natural product profiles across different sort of, I don't know, cousins or.
2: Yeah. I, 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 Populations. Well, even same yeah. species, let's say same you're in the species same species, in different places, different places. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of studies, especially on kind of volatile compounds. You can look at terpenoid right. profiles right. Um, and they're going to differ if, if this tree grows on this side of the mountain versus the other side. Um, absolutely. I think, I think one thing we do see is that generally the prime you know the major secondary metabolites are there. Um, they just are going to be there in different different percentages of relative abundance, right? Mm-hmm. But again, going back to traditional medicine, I mean healers are often very well attuned with you know where certain plants should be collected, what time of day they should be collected, what season they should be collected. Um, what girth or size of the branches should be? I mean, there, there are all these other kind of details, kind of locked up in folklore, which I think actually really point to their understanding of the plant's chemistry, because all yeah, those factors affect fantastic. the chemistry. Yeah.
0: That is something we do not have in bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Although I guess if you change shamans. the media, you change the media, you change the environmental right. conditions, you would get different probably metabolite profiles in bacteria Absolutely. as well.
0: Yeah. 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 Common root. <laughs>
1: And Let's so see. is that how your your ethnobotany studies inform what plant samples you look at and what crude extracts you look at?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Not only like what samples, but also what tissues, right? Because root tissue of a plant is going to have a very different chemical makeup than the leaf tissue because those tissues each serve a different purpose for the plant. And this is something else that healers are very well attuned with is like, you know, um, and also, you know, like I said, the age. So, the age, like a young leaf might not have the same chemistries as an older leaf would have. Um, we also pay a lot of attention to the ways that they're processed: are they dried? Are they used fresh? Are they boiled into a tea? Are they steeped in alcohol? Because again, we try whenever possible to replicate that in in the lab, um, because you know an aqueous extract with heat is going to yield a different composition than a you know a cold alcohol maceration.
0: Sure,
1: I'm curious if you have an example of a favorite plant preparation that led to an interesting scientific discovery. So I'll, I can tell a story of of something that I think was was kind
2: of an interesting tale. So. Um, I was working in um, on one of my visits to the Balkans, working with our collaborators at the University of Pristina. and you know because I'm based in the medical school, I also get to supervise um, resident research. So these are um, dermatology residents that have finished medical school and are training to become board certified dermatologists. And um, on one of these trips, I brought you know great one of the residents with me, and she helped with the field expedition. And while we're in these kind of high montane areas, one of the plants that I kept seeing over and over again that had relevance to skin was St. John's wort. And St. John's wort is something I think many listeners are familiar with. It's found in your health food stores, often as an extract or tincture. But the way that they prepare this in the Balkans is actually as an oleolite preparation. So basically, you take the you know kind of like inflourage, which I love saying that inflorescence, <laughs> you know, extracted in oil
1: <laughs> or fats. Is, is the inflourage, is is that in flower? What is also mean? in flower? Yeah.
2: So in this case, they're taking the flowers, they're putting them into um, transparent bottles, either glass or plastic. So I think glass was more common. And um, you stuff this, you know, this, these bottles with um, with fresh, bright yellow flowers of Hypericum perforatum, which is Saint John's Wort and flower, which grows abundantly in the wild there. Cover it in oil. Most cases are using olive oil, but sometimes they use other kind of canola or other kind of kitchen oils. And they leave it exposed in the sun for forty days. And during that time, it goes from a clear oil and it transforms into this bright blood red color. And there have been many other studies done by scientists in different countries that have shown that that blood red oil actually has a lot of wound healing properties. But for the dermatologist resident and I that were there, you know, when I think of St. John's Wort, my immediate thought was, well, "What about phototoxicity?" And here we have somebody putting this all over their skin because we know that hypericin is is photo, photo you know, can cause photosensitivities, um, and. And I was like, this is strange because they're exposed to the sun. They're rubbing this all over their body. (laughs) What's going on? And so we brought the oil back to the lab and we assessed it. We analyzed it. We also analyzed the other kinds of preparations that you find more commonly in in kind of um, health food stores, you know, as tinctures or um, other extracts. And we looked at both the chemistry and the pharmacological effects against bacteria. And what was interesting is that we found indeed that Both formulations had some antimicrobial properties, um, but the one that was used in traditional medicine lacked the hypericin. So it had become, it had, you know, degraded into something else during this oil extraction process. So you didn't have the risk of those same kind of phototoxicities that you would have if it were extracted in another way. And for me, I mean, that just was such a great tale of, you know, here you have the same starting ingredient, but Depending on how it's traditionally formulated, that can have huge differences on the final outcomes of the chemistry and thus the pharmacology. And so, yeah, I absolutely pay attention to those details when it comes to like what parts are being used and how is it made? How is the medicine being made and stored and um, applied?
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that added complexity of you know the, the idea that plants are out in the sun all day and so yeah even just that sun exposure probably has different spectrums of compounds between what's in a stem or a root or mm-hmm. uh yeah for, uh, on top of the other you know biological reasons for that yeah, yeah no, that's very cool
1: besides just getting more scientists into the field of plant natural product products how else can we evaluate so many plants of uh, you know, at, at scale in high throughput?
2: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked that because especially for this audience, I think there are some amazing resources they should be aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. At the National Cancer Institute, they actually, um, under the guidance of of Dr. Barry O'Keefe, they have a massive um, project ongoing where they are pre-fractionating this, you know, mega library of plant natural products. So these are um, extracts that were originally collected from plants that, you know, globally, I think in the 80s and 90s. And what's great about that collection is they've already squared away all of the kind of ethical considerations with country agreements. So, um, you know, for for those of you in the audience that really want to get your hands on more natural products, but perhaps the idea of you know running off into the forest <laughs> and identifying different plants and bringing them back is not your jam the good news is you know there's this amazing resource that you know can be provided for free to scientists to use they they are actively looking for people to do more um high throughput testing with these libraries, they can be provided. I believe in 96 well plates, um, micro, you know, arrayed out for you to test. And they also have um, on-site assistance if you find some interesting leads and, and need help with isolation or identification of those compounds. But, I mean, again, for the natural products crowd, you could certainly, you know, pursue that on your own as well. Um, once, once you kind of find some interesting hits. So I think there are resources out there and we should definitely keep looking because, you know, we're in this weird paradox of a time where obviously humans are facing the health consequences of our destructive nature against planetary health. Um, we're losing a lot of biodiversity across the globe. A lot of our natural resources are at risk. This puts, you know, the future of human health at risk because you um, of our, you know, we just really haven't looked at most of these resources and we don't know what could be out there that could help us treat the next, you know, some of these highly resistant forms of cancer or bacterial infections or or even the next pandemic um, pathogen. And I think it's important to note just as just as critically that billions, that's with a B, billions of people across the globe rely on plants as their primary form of medicine. We think of it more as a novelty or kind of this supplement to my diet that I can take in, you know, places like in the U.S. or in Europe. But actually, the reality for many, many people across the globe is that is their medicine. And when those resources are put at risk, that really puts, you know, public health at risk on a global scale.
0: You know, people who listen to this podcast hear me say this like every third podcast or so. But um, you know, JGI, uh, our our focus as a DOE. Department of Energy user facility um, is in energy and environment and not necessarily in medicines. Selfishly, what can or should we be doing to help the plant community uh, to, to understand more about plant natural products? You know, We have sequencing facilities, DNA synthesis, um, metabolomics. Uh, where, where, where do you see the role of a big place like JGI in terms of uh, helping out your, your research in your community?
2: Wow. That's, that's a big question. (laughs) Um, Well, I guess, you know, uh, ways that these platforms I think could be leveraged better could be perhaps to take deeper looks at um, the interactions that organisms have, not just within the same kingdom, but actually cross kingdom. So I'm thinking about, you know, what are the interactions that bacteria have with plants what's going on between plants and mycorrhizal fungi i mean this has become something i think it's always fascinated me but you know it's becoming more and more discussed is you know the relationships that that fungi have with plants and how that affects overall forest health and ecosystem health i mean how cool would it be if you can use those metabolomics platforms to Create a better system for reading the language of nature. Like how are they signaling with one another? What are they saying to one another? And what does that what does that mean overall for the environment? And those are very ambiguous questions, but like I, I think right. in general, like it would be really neat if we could keep pushing the envelope on not just identifying compounds, but also really identifying their roles within these complex communication systems
1: um, across kingdoms of life. Okay, this may have you may have already answered this sufficiently, because <laughs> okay. But just in case, um, what made you want to write this book? Oh wow! Um, so
2: I, I guess there were a couple of reasons. I, I I have a lot to say about my kind of passionate call. I want I want more people to to think about exploring plants as a source of medicine, and really, we need more scientists working on this issue. Um, I think also. There's an urgency behind that call because at the same time that we have, you know, just a tremendous amount of biodiversity loss and, you know, linguistic loss, cultural loss, we're losing languages, we're losing species, we're losing ways of knowing. So there's, you know, not just a a need for scientists to investigate the chemistries and pharmacological promise of plants, but also for those to really document and understand the role of different environmental resources in human survival, right? Um, in fact, ethnobotany is the science of survival. That's how it's been defined. Um, the other reason I wanted to write this book is honestly, there aren't that many books about science written by women, and even fewer books written by women scientists. And you know, I really felt like this is something that we need to have more of. And and I hope I hope more and more women scientists have the opportunities to do that. And I think from my my individual perspective too, as not only being a, a woman in science, but also being a disabled woman in science, that I was able to bring it a, a, a another perspective also. And I I hope that this book is useful not just to women in science or, or scientists in general, but also to anyone that kind of identifies as other, whatever other is for them, yeah. that, you know, we whatever your identity is, there are Inherent challenges that we have to face in life. And, um, you know, above all else, I think my advice is to, you know, chase your passion because um, that's, you know, that's what I'm doing. And I'm so very grateful for the opportunity to do so.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. All right. Cool. Um, is there anything that we haven't asked you that you want to talk about?
2: No, I mean, this is great. This is a lot of fun to be able to speak to like the
1: natural products community. I mean, it's great. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah. Great.
1: Uh, What about your book? So when can people pick it up at, you know, in their local bookstores?
2: Yeah, you can, you can find the book. You can find the link on my website at cassandraquave.com. That's C-A-S-S-A-N-D-R-A-Q-U-A-V-E.com. I'm realizing now I probably should have come up with an easier, you know, website handle. Um, I'm also on Twitter at wave ethnobot that's q u a v e e t h n o b o t also on instagram at the same handle um the book will be out on october 19th um, in the u.s canada and uk and we've already got a couple of translation deals happening in asia and i'm hoping um, okay. we'll have this in many languages soon um i'll be on book tour um, Although book tours today are a bit different than they were um, pre-pandemic, but I will have a couple (laughs) of events happening uh, here in Atlanta. I'll be at Atlanta Botanical Gardens on October 12th. Um, I'm going to be doing some virtual events with Missouri Botanical Gardens, with New York Botanical Gardens, and also Fairchild Gardens. Um, And then I'm going to pop across the pond over to the UK um, in late October. And I have some events that um, will be coming out then. You can find all that information on virtual and in-person events again on my website. Yeah. You can also, I'd also encourage listeners to check out my podcast. It's called Foodie Pharmacology. And um, in that podcast, we kind of explore the relationships between Food and medicine, and kind of the food medicine continuum. I get lots of ethnobotanists on the line. Um, this week we were talking about hallucinogenic plants in the Amazon. Um, we've talked about um, all kinds of really cool stuff on the show, so you can check that out too if you're interested. It's
0: it's a it's a good listen. I've I've enjoyed quite a few of those. Um, I I uh, I always uh, grab on the the fermented foods uh, things <laughs> and 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 any any brewing or anything like that because yeah. that's that's my bag. For sure, little hobby. That's awesome. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Super, Cassandra. Thanks so much for for being here today. And uh, I encourage everyone who's even remotely interested in natural products and 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 doing science to uh, to pick it up and and take a look. It's, It's it's a great book. I really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you so much. Great seeing you guys. You too. You
1: too. Thanks, Cassandra.
0: I'm Dan Udry, and you've been listening to Natural Podcast, a podcast produced by the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, a DOE Office of Science user facility located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. You can find links to transcripts, more information on this episode, and our other episodes at naturalprodcast.com. Special thanks, as always, to my co host Allison Takamura. If you like Allison and you want to hear more science from her, check out her podcast, Genome Insider. She talks to lots of great scientists outside of secondary metabolism. And if you like what we're doing here, you'll probably enjoy Genome Insider too. So check it out. My intro and outro music are by Jezar. Please help spread the word by leaving a review of Natural Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you got the podcast. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or to me at Dan Udwary. That's D-A-N-U-D-W-A-R-Y. If you want to record and send us a question that we might play on air, email us at jgi coms that's jgi-comms, at lbl.gov. And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, DNA synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov user-programs. Thanks, and see you next time.